Before we look into God's Word together today, I want to give a shout out to the members of ACAC who make up Fellowship 412 in Homestead. They always appreciate our acknowledging of their partnership with us. Well, today we return to our study of the ancient book of Daniel. And today's episode from that study aligns very well with our nation's focus on the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Because this episode of the story of Daniel records the courage of some godly men who literally stood up for God rather than kneel before the demands of evil. Men who refused spiritual compromise even when that refusal meant they would be cast into an incinerator. I'm not going to attempt to cover the entire story and all of its implications in just one teaching. There are too many important takeaways for that. Instead, today I'll simply go as far as time permits, and then I'll hit the pause button, and we'll continue and return to the story the next time I'm teaching. Last weekend, we focused on Daniel's response to Nebuchadnezzar's anxious question about his dream and what it meant for the future. Today, we're going to focus on the response of Daniel's friends to Nebuchadnezzar's angry threat of death in a furnace. It's found in Daniel chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. Here's how the young men responded. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. My title today may sound a bit contradictory at first hearing. I hope you'll see it isn't. I've entitled today's teaching, Refusing a respectable idolatry. I know those two words generally aren't found together, but hopefully I'll show you that sometimes in our thinking they are joined. Refusing a respectable idolatry. Before we launch our study, join me as we seek the intervention and the assistance of God. Gracious Heavenly Father, in these coming moments, by your Spirit, enable me to faithfully, prophetically, accurately preach and teach your Word. Don't allow me to say anything contrary to the Word. And don't allow me to be silent about anything that is in the Word. Lord, as always, I also pray that you would help every one of us to understand what you're saying and apply it in our lives through the work of your Holy Spirit. 
As always, we pray these things so that we might be the people you desire us to be, not so that you might love us, but because you love us already. And we pray these things for the honor of Christ and in his name. Amen and amen. And as we listen for the voice of God today, may the Lord be with you. Last weekend, we talked about a defining life story. And I suggested the defining life story we choose to embrace shapes every aspect of our life, and it shapes how we engage culture. Today, I want to emphasize another implication of the story we choose. I want to show that the story we choose determines what we refuse. King Nebuchadnezzar had chosen to align his life with one of the counterfeit narratives of pagan unbelief rather than the narratives of God. And as a result, he refused godly wisdom. And as I said, the first weekend of this new year, when we refuse godly wisdom, we settle for ungodly addictions. And when he refused godly wisdom, it left him vulnerable to a particular ungodly addiction that defies any lasting satisfaction. I'm talking about the obsession with the illusion of power. I make that assertion because despite Daniel's reassurance that Nebuchadnezzar's empire faced no immediate threats. Despite the revelation from God that Nebuchadnezzar had been appointed to his post by God, Nebuchadnezzar still felt the need to reinforce the loyalty of his subjects and the sense of nationalism within his empire. And that course of action speaks to the addiction of sin that is never content, that never has enough, that always needs its next hit. But it also speaks to the stubbornness of unbelief. Let me explain. Skeptics and sometimes well-intentioned people sometimes ask, maybe you've heard this ask, why doesn't God just reveal himself in some dramatic, powerful, unmistakable fashion that will convince people of his existence? And my response to that question is twofold. First, he already has. He revealed himself in his word with its fulfilled prophecies in Jesus and the miracles that he performed and in the miracle, unmatched miracle of the resurrection. Yet despite all of that dramatic, powerful, unmistakable evidence, the six-lane interstate that leads to destruction remains filled with bumper-to-bumper traffic. Because unbelief doesn't persist because it lacks evidence. It persists because it refuses faith. That explains why a king 
who received dramatic evidence of God's existence, evidence that God was in his head and knew his very thoughts, that same king that fell on his face before Daniel's God subsequently demanded that his subjects fall before him as if he were God. Another reason that a dramatic public service announcement from God wouldn't dispel unbelief is because unbelief protects its previous investments by refusing anything that threatens them. People often talk about paradigm shifts. And one of the things you'll frequently heard said when paradigm shifts are the topic of conversation is that when a paradigm shifts, people lose all their acquired expertise in the old paradigm and they have to start all over again from square one in the new paradigm, which is why people resist change, why people resist paradigm shifts. They protect their previous investment against anything that appears to threaten it. And I want to remind you, the biggest paradigm shift you can experience is the one that occurs when you move out of darkness into light, out of death into life, the paradigm shift of the new birth through faith in Christ. Unbelief protects its previous investments. It refuses anything that threatens them. That's why Nebuchadnezzar's brief bout with sanity quickly gave way to insecurity. And insecurity always threatens those who come in contact with it, especially when that insecurity is in the heart of a dictator. So it wasn't long before Nebuchadnezzar's insecurity put Daniel's friends in a literal life or death situation. The king built a golden statue 90 feet high and nine foot wide at the base. Then he commanded his subjects to fall down and worship the image at an appointed hour that would be announced by great musical fanfare. Now, we don't know what that image portrayed, but we do know what it symbolized. It symbolized ultimate loyalty to Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire. In essence, Nebuchadnezzar said the diverse peoples of his kingdom were welcome to worship their own gods as long as they swore ultimate allegiance to the state of Babylon. It was an intentionally seductive policy. But Nebuchadnezzar understood that even the most seductive state policies sometimes need state sanctions, state sanctions, to encourage the reluctant towards full participation. So on the day the people assembled to kneel before the statue, a blazing furnace was burning in the background. It was clearly a bow or burn situation. And it was a reminder that the world often demands a very high price from those who refuse to do things 
its way. Some of you have probably paid that price in the loss of a relationship, in the loss of a promotion, in the loss of a raise. Historians would view Nebuchadnezzar's edict to bow before this statue as political pragmatism, a savvy exercise in preserving his empire and promoting nationalism. But Daniel's friends recognized it as something more. They recognized it as blatant idolatry. And they would have to pass on participation. Because those who follow God cannot give ultimate loyalty to any nation, including their own. That's why I find the commonly used and commonly accepted and highly respected phrase, God and country, to be very dangerous spiritually. That phrase, God and country, tends to make idolatry respectable. Now, before you stone me or tell me, well, move to Afghanistan, <laughs> let me explain. As we have seen already in this story, Daniel and his friends, though they were exiles, separated from family and their own culture, were highly engaged in civic public service in Babylon. They demonstrated that it is possible for believers to serve God by serving a nation state, even a corrupt nation state, providing their service doesn't compromise their devotion to God or the principles of their faith. But while believers may serve God by serving a nation state, believers can't serve any nation state as if it is God or an extension of God, part of a God package. When it comes to ultimate loyalty, there can be no and after God, no matter what comes after the and. God doesn't have equal partners. It must be God and God alone. Even at their young age, Daniel's friends understood that much. Well, when the big day for kneeling before the statue arrived, virtually everybody in Babylon turned out for the celebration. It was meant to serve as a reminder that Babylon had no equals. No nation could match its influence, its scope, its military, or its economy. It was number one. And I rather suspect at some point, someone in the crowd, maybe somebody planted there, started the chant of Babylon, Babylon. Babylon. It was a seductive feast of false security. And here's why I describe it that way. Scripture tells us that God established human government 
as a necessity in a fallen world, and he commissioned human government to seek the common welfare, maintain order, punish those who do evil, and protect the innocent. But both scripture and history remind us that the state as a human institution tends to drift toward idolatry. And like Nebuchadnezzar's edict, that tendency has its roots in the persistent insecurity that is the inevitable ongoing result of humanity's fallen condition. Fallenness produces insecurity. We were created to find our identity, our authority, and our security in our Creator in the context of a loving relationship with Him. But the sin in every one of us has compromised that relationship, and with it, our sense of security has been compromised. That's why those who refuse God as their ultimate authority and security will always look to someone or something else for those things. They'll look to someone or something that promises to provide order, stability, security, protection, predictability, and social glue and cohesiveness. If the state offers those things or claims it can provide them, then people tend to look to the state. And that's idolatry, God replacement, putting your ultimate hopes in, putting your ultimate loyalty in, a human nation state in a fallen creation. Now, it's important to point out that what unfolded in Babylon that day was not patriotism. It was nationalism. Big, big difference. Patriotism is a healthy concern for one's country and a desire to see it improve. Nationalism is an excessive undiscriminating devotion to one's country that takes priority over all other concerns and all other peoples and all other countries. It's a highly seductive form of idolatry precisely because it appears to be so logical, good, and respectable. A patriot has been described as a loving critic and a critical lover. A patriot will say, here are the things in my nation that really need to change. They don't align with the justice of God, with the goodness of God, with the welfare of all people. But nationalism is that excessive devotion that says it's either us or them. We have to win. They have to lose. It relates to other nations and other peoples as if life is a zero-sum game. If you gain, it means I've lost. 
And for me to gain, you have to lose. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was hardly the first ruler to link patriotism, nationalism, culture, and religion in an unholy union and an unequal yoke for the political benefit of the state and in the interests of those who were in power. He wasn't the first, and he would not be the last. Centuries later, the Caesars of Rome, that third empire that Daniel prophesied, the Caesars of Rome followed an almost identical path for almost identical reasons. Everyone in that incredibly diverse empire of Rome was welcome to practice their religion if, if they would simply also recognize Caesar as Lord and give their ultimate allegiance to Caesar and the political entity that was the Roman Empire. But the early church, even though it was in its spiritual infancy, still knew that lips that confess Jesus is Lord cannot confess Caesar is Lord. They knew they could seek the welfare of the nation in which they found themselves even when that nation had subjugated their own people. But they could not put Rome or any state on an equal plane with God. So just as Daniel's friends would go to Nebuchadnezzar's furnace, many of those first century believers went to their own furnace. They went to the fires stoked by Nero. Now, this isn't all ancient history what we're talking about today. What unfolded in ancient Babylon and subsequently unfolded in ancient Rome unfolded in my lifetime in the United States of America. It unfolded during the 1950s. If you're familiar with the history, then you'll know that during the 1950s, a group of wealthy industrialists and powerful political leaders joined together, brought together by their shared concern about the spread of communism and the threat it posed to American democracy and American capitalism. And they decided the most effective way to combat the threat of communist ideas would be to give America's economic and political values, biblical underpinnings. They made an intentional strategy of marrying American capitalism to the Christian faith and to the Word of God. They paid large sums of money to pastors who were either starstruck and compromised or sadly undiscerning. They paid them to, in essence, perform the ceremony. 
They set up rallies and sponsored rallies all across the country in which pastors were some of the keynote speakers. They coined the phrase God and country intentionally. And President Eisenhower declared it the national motto. In the earliest days of our country, those words, in God we trust, were found on some of the coins, but nowhere else. But in 1956, as part of this God and country movement, again started not by the spirit, but by industrial and political interests, the words, in God we trust, were placed on our printed currency. In 1954, the words, one nation under God, were inserted in the Pledge of Allegiance. Earlier, it had simply said one nation indivisible. Then it said one nation under God indivisible. Now, to the undiscerning, it appeared to be a religious revival. America turning back to God. But it was actually an act of idolatry. It used God's name in vain. It made God the servant of capitalism, materialism, consumerism. It made God the servant of the wealthy and the political powerful. It made God the servant of one nation state. A nation state that would subsequently, also in my lifetime, declare itself secular and remove God's word and prayer from its schools. And it's all a sad reminder that people are often willing to pay a high price, a high spiritual price, for the benefits promised by human societies and human governments. But they're always disappointed. And that's not only true of unbelievers. I wish that it was only true of unbelievers. It's often, tragically, true of undiscerning believers as well. The church always pays a high price anytime it kneels before an idol, even if that idol appears to be respectable. That's why the apostles, the New Testament letters, tell us we need to test all things against the benchmarks of God's eternal, unchanging, inerrant word. And then once we've tested things, we are to choose, hold fast to those things that are good. And by implication, we are to refuse those things that are not good. Remember, when idolatry is common, 
it begins to feel acceptable. It begins to feel respectable. It can't be wrong when it feels so right. It can't be wrong when so many are espousing it. Friends, in Babylon, all but a tiny handful of Jewish young men felt it was right to kneel and give their ultimate loyalty to empire. But those few boys knew it could never be their path as followers of God. Having chosen God as their life story, they refused idolatry. Now at that point, without any clean conclusion, I'm going to simply hit the pause button and we'll return to the story in a couple weeks. But now, take a moment and in a place of quiet reflection in your own heart, in your own spirit, in your own mind, chew the cud, <laughs> mull over this teaching and ask yourself and ask the Holy Spirit if perhaps you've fallen for some respectable idolatry, if perhaps you've been seduced by the empty, reassuring promises of nation-state, rather than finding your security and your assurance in the state of your relationship with God? Have you said some things that prop up the respectable idolatry? Does the respectable idolatry govern much of what you say? Does the respectable idolatry become lenses through which you view Scripture? Just talk to the Lord about those things. Father, it has been said that the human heart is an idol-making machine, and it's true. We, like ancient Israel, have a habit of pursuing one idol and then another and then another instead of finding what we hunger for in you. Make us mindful of the pernicious idolatry of state and nation that nudges God to the circumference and puts nationalism at the center. Israel fell into that trap. Many others since as Israel have done so, and Lord, many in this culture have fallen into that trap. I simply pray we would not be numbered among them but that we would show a better way in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. God bless you.